If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support this independent show and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. If you follow the arguments in Civilized to Death, that on an individual level, we're really not better off. Even the luckiest among us is not significantly better off than hunter-gatherers. So what have we been doing for the last 10,000 years? Who benefits from this? That was Dr. Christopher Ryan, a psychologist, host of the podcast Tangentially Speaking, co-author of the New York Times bestseller Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships, and author of his more recently published book, Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress. Central to Green Dreamer is this question of what are we progressing for if the basic things that matter to people's lives are deteriorating? Life satisfaction, happiness, mental health, connection, community, interdependence, our clean water, clean air, and safety and quality of food on which we depend. While Civilized to Death is a must-read if you're interested in exploring this topic further, especially if you find what we discussed today intriguing. Just to give you a preview of some commonly perpetuated myths that Chris debunks in his book about prehistoric humans, these are shared on his website in a cheat sheet for the book at chrisryanphd.com. So here's one of the myths. Prehistoric life was a constant struggle to survive. No thanks. Chris's response? Almost without exception, hunter-gatherers rarely work more than three or four hours per day, and these activities are the kinds of things we do on vacation. Hunt, picnic, fish, play with kids. The idea that one has to do unpleasant things in order to pay for life is not present in hunter-gatherer societies, most of whom have no word for work. Here's another one. War was constant among tribes. His response? Nope. By definition, immediate return, hunter-gatherers have no accumulated resources. No gardens, no pigs, no houses, no bags of grain, no gold. They carry as little as possible because they are nomadic and know how to find and make what they need for their environment. They move across the landscape so they have little need to stop and fight over any particular spot. Everyone is armed and knows how to use their weapons well. What would motivate you to risk your life attacking them? 
what do they have that's worth dying over? Aside from the illogic of assuming people with nothing to fight over were constantly fighting, there is a great deal of evidence reviewed in Civilized to Death that, in fact, war only became ubiquitous when our species shifted to settled, expansionist, hierarchical, agricultural social systems with accumulated resources well worth fighting over and a need to keep spreading into new territories. Super fascinating, and we go over many more things like this in our episode. So, Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I've been questioning the notion of progress and more specifically American culture and the values of ambition and hard work and all that kind of stuff uh, as long as I can remember. My first serious intellectual passion as a child was studying Native American cultures as a kid. That's pretty much all I did from... I don't know, eight or nine years old until 15 or 16 when I discovered girls and got into the aha moment that led to my first book, Sex <laughs> at Time, probably. But yeah, I've been questioning this idea that life is better for us than it was before civilization since I was a kid. And a lot of my trajectory intellectually can be seen as sort of, um, you know, coming back a, a cycle of of having a sort of almost an instinctive understanding of something and then spending decades figuring it out intellectually. So the main premise of Civilized to Death is that we have to really challenge our deeply indoctrinated ideas of progress being inherently good. And I have to say, I'm really excited about this conversation because I frequently get into disagreements with my dad, where he holds the more mainstream perspectives that, you know, we need economic growth and we need to keep advancing as a society. And then I'm like, hold up, what have those things actually meant for us in human terms and for the the values that we actually care about. So I probably will be gifting your book to him because you debunk many <laughs> presumptions that we have of how much we've improved our lives since the times of our prehistoric human relatives. Just to invite our listener to start thinking about this as well, what are some of the most common misconceptions you think we have of our prehistoric relatives and what we call progress today? Well, I think probably the most common one is that everyone seems to know that nobody lived past 35. Mm. That's uh, ubiquitous. I um, taught medical anthropology in a medical school in Barcelona a couple of years, and it was interesting that even the medical students believe this. And this is totally wrong. Homo sapiens, our species, typically lives into their 60s and 70s in the wild. Chimpanzees live into their 50s. Chimps and bonobos typically live into their 50s. They're very closely related primates. The misconception comes about because of a combination of misunderstanding and, I argue, in Civilized to Death, also the sort of psychological 
payoff that we get from believing that we live twice as long. So no matter what other problems we have, at least we've doubled the human lifespan. But we haven't, in fact. It's a statistical error based on infant mortality and archaeological findings that show that a lot of children died at a very young age. And so when you average the ages and include those children, then you get a statistical life expectancy at birth of 35. That doesn't mean that people were old at 35. Nobody was ever old at 30 or 35. So I'd say that's the most common thing. Everybody from doctors to everybody you talk to will say, oh, but we've doubled the human lifespan. The reason we have back problems is because the, you know, our body wasn't designed to last for 70 years. It was only designed to last for 30 or 35 years. This is totally false. And yet everyone seems to believe it. And my dad's a doctor, so he'll say things like, oh, but now we have medicine and we've been able to treat a lot of illnesses that would have killed people off in the past. So what do you say to that? What's complicated about that is that the past is a very big place. And it's not all the same. So people talk about the past as if there's some sort of universal past that we can compare to the present. And that's simply not the case. If you're talking about 300 years ago, then that argument's true. There were a lot of infectious diseases that were killing people 300 years ago. Smallpox, cholera, influenza, tuberculosis, on and on. And that we now have ways to deal with through vaccines and antibiotics and so on. But if you're talking about prehistory, before agriculture, none of those diseases even existed among humans. All of the diseases I just mentioned are pathogens that came over from domesticated animals to human populations after those animals were domesticated and we were living in very close proximity to them and to their waste products. So tuberculosis, came from cattle, smallpox came from chickens and ducks, influenza, all these diseases come from the, the results of civilization. So when someone says, yes, but now we can treat all these terrible diseases that killed people in the past, it's true if you're talking about medieval Europe, it's not true if you're talking about 20,000 years ago those diseases didn't exist. So to me, that's like someone saying, you know, well, thank God we've got airbags and seatbelts now because all our ancestors died in auto accidents. <laughs> well, yeah, people died in auto accidents 20, 30 years ago, not having seatbelts and airbags, but not 20,000 years ago, there were no cars. So it's, it's sort of a irrelevant argument to make if you're talking about prehistory. Right. And with how we've been able to prolong our lifespan a little bit through medicine, would you say that's mostly just really prolonging the last stages of our lives where people may be sick in bed, but just not dead yet <laughs> compared to prehistoric humans where they might have lived maybe five, 10 years shorter, but all those years when they're alive, it's really active and they're full of vitality when they are alive. Yes, that's that's true. When you look at the years of active life in hunter-gatherers, depending on which study you're looking at, it's anywhere from 68 to 75 years is, is the range in which hunter-gatherers typically die from one thing or another. And their death occurs quickly. So they live vigorous active lives, by definition, they're hunters, gatherers, they need to be moving, the camp moves pretty often. 
And when they can no longer maintain that sort of life, they tend to die quickly within a couple of weeks. Whereas because of our medical technologies and our very strange attitude toward death, that it's something to be avoided at all costs, no matter what, especially in the United States, what we do is we prolong the agony of dying. We're not really prolonging years of active, healthy, happy, pleasurable life. We're prolonging the process of dying, which I don't think does anyone any favors. I have witnessed this personally. Last year, my father died after four or five years of test after test. I finally had to tell his doctor to stop the test because she was in denial of the fact that he's dying. Let the man die. Let people go. It's not serving any of us individually to prolong the the agony and the surgeries and the chemotherapies and this and that simply to avoid the fact that we're going to die. And that's such a powerful thing to think about because as people who love our family members, our relatives, our friends who may be terminally ill and et cetera, we of course want to keep them around for as long as possible. Sure. But when we say keep them around, who do we mean? You right. know. When someone, for example, is is living with severe dementia and they don't even know who they are, much less who we are, is that person still alive, really? We're keeping their body alive, but the person is gone. So I think we need to ask very serious questions about what is life, really? What does it mean to be alive? And similarly, I think we're in a very impoverished state when we think about death because we have this very linear sense of what a life is, which makes us very afraid of death to the point where anything, any kind of suffering seems to be preferable to death because so many of us think it's just nothing or it's, it's some sort of, you know, hellish agony. I think this is a very misinformed view of what life and death really are. A key turning point in our human history that you note is the advent of agriculture. And you say that this actually gave way to the transition from more egalitarian communities to ones with hierarchical power structures that created greater inequalities. So in what ways were prehistoric humans more egalitarian? And then how did agriculture change that? Well, pre-agricultural people were egalitarian in virtually every sense. Um, Male-female relations, much more egalitarian. Treatment of children, much more balanced. Even treatment of animals, more respectful and balanced. The fact that agriculture introduced the concept of private property to human behavior and human, the sort of human lexicon for the first time, And we started to see each other as property. The status of women plummeted from being equal to men to being essentially equal to farm animals, possessions of men. If you read the famous quote from the Old Testament, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. You know, I always thought that referred to respecting someone else's marriage. But if you read it in context, what you see is that it's actually about respecting another man's property. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his house, nor his ox, nor his slave. That's the context of that line. So what's happened with the transition from hunter-gatherers to post-agricultural societies is you get political hierarchies, you get the sense of ownership, 
You can own property, land, you can own animals, you can even own other people. Hunter-gatherers have no understanding of this, no concept of owning land or other people or, you know, it creates a lot of confusion. So you have these bizarre situations where on first contact, Westerners are trying to, you know, figure out how to buy the land and the native people are saying, what do you mean buy the land? How can you own the land? It's like asking me to sell you the sky. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. So with this in mind, do you think there's also a relationship between the power structure or inequalities of a human society and how its people treat nature and their lands? So does inequality among humankind also impact our collective relationship and connection with nature? Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, because of the things I was just saying, when you have a, an understanding of the relationship with land as one of ownership and, and dominion, to use the biblical term, you're going to exploit that land. Some people look at forested range of mountains and they see God or they see abundance and gifts from the gods. It's full of food. It's full of everything we need to create a shelter and it's full of medicines and it's full of all these beautiful gifts from, from the gods. Other people look at it and see lumber. They see something to be exploited. They see, you know, maybe there's gold in those hills that can be dug out and maybe we can use that water for the process of uh, processing gold and it doesn't matter that we're dumping cyanide in the streams. So there's a very different kind of approach to land when you see yourself as embedded within it and part of a web that includes everything that you see, everything around you, versus you see yourself as something separate, as we do in the West. When we see ourselves as separate from that land, then we can do what we want to it under the assumption that that doesn't come back at us. I think that finally we're starting to see that everything we do to the land comes back at us. Every piece of plastic that we throw away, now it's coming back as microplastics in the food, in the, in the, the food chain, in the fish. It's unavoidable. It's everywhere. You can't dump something and have it just go away. There is no away anymore. Everything cycles back. Well, fast forward to today, the wealth gap has only widened, probably at the widest it's ever been, where in the United States, the richest three people have more wealth than the bottom 50% of the domestic population combined. And you've said some pretty interesting things about how inequality impacts our public well-being, including the well-being of the people holding the long end of that stick and have the most wealth in the midst of the inequality. So what do we know about how the power structures of our society affect everyone from those at the bottom to those at the top? You know, when you write a book, you you sort of start out with a sense of what you're going to cover and what you're going to discover as you dig deeper into the different areas. But in the two books I've written, there have been surprises where, I, you know, I come across information that really sort of changes the idea for what the book is going to be. In this case, what you're asking about is one of the surprises that came about with Civilized to Death when I was... Looking at these sort of economic disparities that you mentioned, and I looked into the research of how much happier wealthy people are than people who aren't wealthy, I realized they're not happier. In fact, in many ways, they're less happy. 
if you look at on a national level, for example, the countries that report the highest levels of life satisfaction are countries that have the smallest disparity of wealth. In other words, being extremely wealthy doesn't help you. You're winning the game, but what are you winning? You're winning social isolation. You're winning sort of distrust of the people around you. I know a lot of people who are very wealthy and they're not happier than anyone else. In fact, they're often much less happy and feel much more isolated. I used to think that economics was kind of like a poker game at your friend's house. If, if you win, it means someone else lost and everybody, the money just sort of moves around between the people at the table. But then I realized that even the people who are winning are losing. Even the people who have the most money, who are living in the mansions, they're not happy either. Civilization really isn't working for them either. So who's winning? What's going on? This is more like a poker game in a casino where everybody ends up losing. Are there any winners at all? Or is this a lose-lose situation? Well, maybe the robots. You know, I think, <laughs> I, you know, I, I actually what happened was when I started thinking about this, I wrote like a hundred pages getting into this, like who is winning, what's winning, what's going on here, and my editor basically said, "Look, that's a whole different book. You can't <laughs> like that's not going to work as part of this book." So we cut all that out, and maybe I'll get around to writing that book one day. But what I ended up concluding, which, you know, might sound a little crazy out of context if I just throw it out like this. But what I ended up concluding is that essentially what's winning is a super organism. You know, we are each full of bacteria that don't share our DNA that without which we can't exist. So each one of us is a community of organisms in our guts, in our blood, on our skin, in our eyes, all over our body. We're swarming with all these bacteria and, and other organisms that we need in order to exist. Every living thing is composed of smaller living things. Now, if you look at humans, you say, well, why would it stop with us? Why, what are we within? What living thing do we compose? And so I started thinking about superorganisms and the way emergent intelligence expresses itself in social organisms, like birds that flock or fish that school spontaneously or termites that somehow know to build these very complex mounds with all these air chambers and passages within them. But no, no one termite is directing this, right? Nobody knows. There's no leader. There's no sort of termite architects or anything. It just happens. And I think something like that is happening with us as well. I think that we, when enough human beings get together, a sufficient population density, certain emergent properties start to be expressed. And I think that's what's happening. Because I think on an individual level, it's quite clear if you if you follow the arguments and civilize to death that on an individual level, we're really not better off. Even the luckiest among us is not significantly better off than hunter-gatherers. So what have we been doing for the last 10,000 years? Who benefits from this? explosive population growth, explosive technological advances. If the life satisfaction of even the luckiest among us is not clearly higher than that of hunter-gatherers, then 
what's propelling this. It doesn't seem to be congruent with the argument that we're often told that life is getting better for us. It actually isn't. Well, we really look forward to your next book for you to further explore that topic of who really is winning here. And just knowing this, does this give you more empathy for the people at the top, just knowing how this works at a psychological level? Because I feel like with the increasing wealth gap, there's an increasing sense of animosity towards the rich, but maybe they're also just playing the same game that we've been disillusioned to play. It does give me a lot more empathy. Uh, There's a section in the book called Rich Asshole Syndrome, uh, where I sort of jokingly introduce the psychological concept. I, I try to look at the question of, do people get rich because they lack empathy? Or does being rich, richer than the people around you, make it difficult to have empathy. And so it sort of creates the necessity for developing a sort of psychological scar tissue. And what I concluded from looking at the research is that it's the latter, that it's very difficult to have much more than the people around you. And I think anyone who has traveled understands this. And I I wrote about uh, an experience I had on my first trip to India a long time ago. I was young and just starting to travel. And I had that experience of, of realizing that people were starving all around me. And I was sitting in a restaurant enjoying delicious curry and people were standing a few feet from me, children in the street, literally starving. I felt how unfair that was. And yet I also felt how helpless I was to really address the problem. You know, handing them food or handing them money would not change the problem. It would you know, my money, my food, my resources would quickly be exhausted and nothing would have fundamentally changed about the situation. You know, there's reason to feel compassion for wealthy people because we all sort of say, well, they should give away their money. But from their perspective, they say, well, I can give away my money, but it's not going to change anything. So it's, it's a very unfair system for all of us. And, you know, maybe the greatest tragedy is that So many people are working so hard trying to accumulate more money, and yet the more money they have, the more money they need, and nobody wins. Well, I think it's quite natural for people in positions of power who hold great amounts of wealth to want to hold on to that because we have that human instinct to want to watch out for ourselves. And then there's also the added really complex piece of they might not know how they can help people given this system that we have. So with all that we've discussed, I guess for the people at the top with the case for greater social equity, meaning a desire from them to even help fight for systemic change and structural changes to our society and even relinquish some of their power, be that it's actually going to be beneficial to them to exist in a more egalitarian society and that it may also be enriching for them in a way that can't be quantified in monetary terms when they're able to give more and contribute more. Yeah, I think it's it's much more important to make systemic changes than for individuals to, you know, worry about trying to address things on a personal level as far as, you know, making broad change. I think on an individual level, you know, if somebody's feeling depressed or sad or unhappy with their lives, psychological research has shown repeatedly that the 
the most reliable way to feel better about your life is to help someone else. So there's a sort of a selfishness in generosity. If you can go volunteer at a homeless shelter or a hospice or an animal shelter or whatever, you're going to feel better. So there is something on an individual level that's very valuable in helping other people. Now, of course, this makes perfect sense if you understand how our species evolved, because basically the way we survived as a species is by helping one another. I quote this um, African expression that I heard years ago, the best place to store extra food is in my friend's stomach, right? It's a beautiful expression, but there's a lot of self-interest in that, because the reason you store your extra food in your friend's stomach is that you're going to be hungry. And when you're hungry, that friend is going to remember that you helped her and then she's going to help you. That sort of interdependence is what our species does very well. We form these complex social networks of mutual assistance and cooperation. That's what we're really good at. So there's a reason, a very good and fundamental reason why helping other people is gratifying and and makes us feel good about ourselves. Similarly, one of the worst feelings is being separated from other people, feeling excluded from a group, for example. And yet, if you look at the modern world in the West, in the United States, almost 25% of us live alone and 50 to 70% of Americans report being moderately or severely lonely. This is a big problem that we have. As far as getting back to your question about systemic change, I think it's very important that these changes happen on a political level, that we don't just, you know, sort of rely on Bill Gates and Warren Buffett to to <laughs> give back some of their money. I don't think that's a, a very good plan for going into the future. I think that everybody as you suggested, everybody from the top to the bottom does better when the top and the bottom are closer together, when everyone feels part of a community in which we're all taken care of. Uh, one of the reasons I think that the wealthy in the United States try to hold on to their money so tightly is that they're afraid of what will happen to them without money. Because in the United States, we have a very sort of ruthless approach to people who can't financially take care of themselves. In many cases, they're, they're left to their own devices. They're thrown out on the street. And, and now, you know, cities are passing laws making it illegal to even be homeless. I don't know what people are supposed to do. We're not helping them. We're not giving them a place to live. And we're making it illegal for them to even exist. It's insane. If you look at countries like Denmark, Sweden, Norway, that have strong social safety nets, that have very progressive tax systems so that billionaires don't exist, billionaires can't exist, and people at the, at the bottom are taken care of, very generous maternity leave policies and paternity leave, helping mothers with raising children and free health care, all this kind of stuff helps everybody. And it creates a more relaxed attitude toward accumulating wealth because you're not that worried about what's going to happen if you get sick. You're not going to go bankrupt. You're not going to be thrown out of the hospital because you can't pay the bill. You know, I lived in Spain most of my life, which has a more or less socialist system. And you see people are much more relaxed there because they're not worried about what's going to happen when they get old or if they get sick. Sure, they're worried about being sick, but they're not worried about being uh, financially destroyed as well as we are in the United States. And these systems 
these more sort of socialistic, democratic socialist systems replicate in many ways the interdependence and mutual cooperation of our hunter-gatherer ancestors. So it's a way of reflecting these values and these conditions in the modern world that benefits everyone. And I think we see this even in the United States, which is one of the most capitalist, hardcore capitalist countries in many ways, at least as far as the way it treats individual people, if not corporations. We see this as part of the discussion right now with Andrew Yang wanting to give every adult $1,000 a month. This is a very hunter-gatherer approach to life. Take care of everybody. You know, if somebody goes out and shoots an animal, they don't come back to the village and only, you know, share it with the the wife and the kids. That's not the way it works. Everybody shares meat in hunter-gatherer societies. Everybody shares all the food. Everyone raises the children together, takes care of the children. So it's a very, you know, if we look at the political debates going on in the United States right now, Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang are, are definitely the hunter-gatherer candidates. I love that frame of thinking. So basically, because we can't really turn back the clocks, we can learn from our past in terms of what has helped us to thrive in the hunter-gatherer societies and sort of replicate that within our modern society. And finally, to close, for us as individuals, what can we learn from this reflection of our history so that we can actually build a path forward that leads to greater health, happiness, and fulfillment for ourselves? Well, I think it's important to understand that I'm not advocating any kind of a return to a hunter-gatherer life. I'm not an anarcho-primitivist or, or anything like that. What I'm advocating is, as you suggest, that we can learn important things about what it means to be human from our hunter-gatherer past. After all, more than 95% of our existence as a species has been spent in small, interdependent hunter-gatherer bands. This civilizational life is very recent, a very small part of our existence as a species. So if we want to understand what works for us, the best place to look is in the distant past. And that's what I've tried to do in Civilized to Death on a sort of general level and in Sex at Dawn on a more intimate level, is look into the prehistory of our species for a map to what's going to work for us to make us happier in our relationships, in our work, in our families, in our health, etc. And so when we do look at the past, the distant past, what we find are that the number one predictor of longevity is not how much you exercise or whether you smoke or whether you drink or what your diet is, the number one predictor of longevity is whether or not you feel embedded in a community of people who love and respect you. That's medical research has found that. That's not surprising if you understand what kind of a species we are. It is surprising if you look at human beings as machines that need to be tweaked and you need to, you can just sort of control the diet and the exercise and the heart rate and monitor these systems. You'd be surprised at that. But the number one healthiest country in the world right now, according to the World Health Organization, is Spain where I live for 20-some years. That's very strange. Spain has one of the highest rates of alcohol consumption and tobacco use. 
So why are people living longer in Spain? It's because people are relaxed. It's low stress life. There's a lot of pleasure in life. So I think it's very important to understand that the key to a good life is not something that's easily quantified in numbers. It's something that's uh, a very qualitative question. How much are you enjoying your life? Life is not about working. It's not about piling up money in your bank account. It's about enjoyment. It's in, about relationships and how happy you are on a day-to-day -day basis. In these terms, we're not doing very well. Certainly in the United States, we're not doing very well. And I think that people are finally coming to the point where they're looking at life and saying, this isn't working. The American dream is not working. This is the first generation, you, you millennials, you're the first generation who are clearly, as a generation, going to have less money than your parents did. This is tough. This is, there's a, a real change here. And I think people are looking at this and saying, okay, I need to figure out a different way to approach this because the approach that I've been told to take isn't working. It's not working for people 10 years older than me, and it's going to work even less for, for my generation. So I think people are taking this into their own hands. You see a lot of people who are saying, okay, I want to do work that's location independent, so I don't need to live in a big city. I don't need to pay high rent and drive to work every day and, and have all the stress in my life. I can go and live in a small town with my friends and we can share a house and we can share resources and take care of each other. And maybe my friend wants to have a baby, but I don't. But I, I'd love to be around a baby and help my friend take care of her baby. And so I think people are forming these and we might even call them tribal kind of relationships. I see it happening all the time, especially among people who listen to my podcast. They're always, I travel around in a van every summer and hold events in different towns and 50 to 100 people show up at these events and you, a lot of them are, are doing this. They're buying land together, they're buying a big house together and renovating it and you see these sort of organic networks that are forming where people are taking care of each other. I think it's one of the most beautiful things that's happening right now. an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? There's a book called A Brief History of Progress by Ronald Wright. I wouldn't say it's necessarily uplifting, but it's been very, it's a very profound book and it's very short and to the point. It's sort of a, 
a survey of different civilizations that have existed through history and the different phases of those civilizations. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? <laughs> There's a, you're assuming I stay positive and inspired. Um, <laughs> We're trying well, to. <laughs> you know, life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like, I think we're in a very difficult moment of history. I have a lot of compassion for millennials and, and people younger than you. I think you're you're coming into a big storm that's going to be very challenging. But I think it's also in, in any challenge are opportunities. And so I think that as Western civilization continues its decline, which is uh, accelerating. We can see it accelerating and the collapse of every institution around us at the moment. There are going to be amazing opportunities. And so I think this is a, a very interesting time for people to take control of their own lives, try to grow their own food, try to help one another. One of the areas in Civilized to Death that was really interesting for me was the study of disaster sociology, which is scientists who look at the way people behave in disasters. And what they found was that people who survive disasters think back on those days as the best days of their lives mm -hmm. because their lives were full of meaning and relationship and connection and challenge. So... What I tell myself is that even though things are very difficult and getting more difficult, if we approach it the right way, those difficulties offer amazing opportunities. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Well, I'm I'm in Thailand right now. And when I finish this interview with you, I'm going to the dentist to have some work done that is overdue. <laughs> so I guess that's a pretty big thing I'm working on. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for a better future? I have two books in the pipeline that I'm I'm sort of starting with right now. One is a novel set in prehistory, which will be first time I've written fiction for publication. And the other is uh, actually a self-help book, believe it or not, mm. sort of a parody of a self-help book that will actually be a self-help book that outlines some of these ideas that we were talking about. It's sort of a pleasure-based bohemian guide to good health. Love it. We'll definitely stay posted on this. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? What makes me most hopeful? See, I'm not as optimistic as you are. So these, <laughs> these questions are difficult for me. You know, strangely, I think what makes me most hopeful for our planet is that civilization seems to be in its final days, because clearly civilization is not good for the planet. We're destroying virtually every living system on the planet. So my hope for the planet is that civilization sort of collapses without doing too much more damage. And it's no, no question this is going to lead to incredible suffering. It already is. Uh, hundreds of millions of refugees from climate change, for example, we're already seeing that happening and it's going to accelerate and be much worse. But for those who survive it, hopefully there will be an opportunity to replicate prehistory in ways that make life much more livable and manageable. 
Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this really profound and perspective shifting conversation with me. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I think the only thing I would say is that I think it's very important to take control of your destiny. Don't count on civilization to save you because I think civilization can't even save itself. So as much as you can, take control of your own destiny and get together with friends and store your extra food in your friend's stomach. That's the best way to go. (laughs) 